Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you today, including first-time home buyers. How can anyone afford a home in this market, especially young people trying to buy their very first home? Well, it helps if your parents have some cash to help you out. Maybe the parents own their home. They can borrow against the equity of that family home, use that money to help their kids buy a home. So that's what we call the bank of mom and dad. And there's some really interesting new statistics out on that. We'll tell you all about that today on the show. So we have all that. We have lots more. But first, we start with BC scrapping letter grades on kids report cards so this kicks in for uh, this fall it covers kids from kindergarten through grade nine no more a b c's or d's on kids report card instead they will go to a more descriptive scale on report cards that we'll tell you about now not everybody happy about this some parents speaking up about it. We talked, we told you about this on yesterday's show. Got a big reaction from the listeners. Have a listen to grade seven student here, Keon Shabazz. He wants to keep the letter grades. Have a listen. I've had a hard time transferring between the two due to the, how vague the proficiency scale is. It seems very subjective. Okay. Uh, kids in grade seven. Sounds like a very bright kid. I bet you that kid's straight A, straight A students by the sound of him. No wonder he wants to keep the letter grades. Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Eleanor Sturko, BC United MLA in the legislature, representing Surrey South. Very pleased to welcome her back. Eleanor, thank you for coming on today. Oh, um, it's my pleasure. I can't believe what a bright student that guy is. He's very well-spoken. Yeah, I know. I was thinking the same thing. I was going, okay, this kid's getting A's. That's that's what I thought was going on there yeah, for sure. So. Wow. Yeah, I think so. Okay, Eleanor, what are your thoughts on this now? Because the government, you know, when you ask the problem, why are you doing this? And they say, well, we're modernizing the system. Some other people had criticized letter grades saying they, they can trigger kids and produce stress and anxiety. What do you think of this move? Well, you know, the real stress and anxiety I think that comes in children is when they are not able to keep up with their peers, when they're not able to, um, you know, for example, fill out a job application after grade 12. And this is some of the stuff that, uh, you know, I've heard from parents. I've certainly heard from educators. Uh, It's probably my second biggest issue that I receive uh, emails and letters to my constituency office because I am the education critic for British Columbia. And this subject is very uh, concerning for parents and educators. You know, it's not just the, the letter grades changing to this new system, which my own children actually have been on since, uh, you know, it, it came into force. They were part of the schools that were piloting it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's also a move away from the standardized testing. And yeah. um, we've actually seen in British Columbia drops in literacy and numeracy, which is something that I brought up during the estimates with uh, Minister Singh. Um, but, you know, her indication was that the government's not really concerned about that. Uh, and that's deeply troubling to me. I think, you know, um, we're hearing from parents, 69% of uh, P4 
people in their their own survey that they did a 97-page report in 2021 with 4,000 people in it, 69% of people dissatisfied with the new policy and 77% of teachers not happy with it, 68% of students. So to me, it's mind-boggling actually why they would continue going forward with something when the satisfaction rate and the opposition to it, especially among parents, is so high. Yeah, you wonder what is the point of going through a consultation exercise and talking to parents and teachers, getting their feedback and collecting it and publishing it in a report and indicating a very clear preference one way or the other. And then you do the opposite. You know, what's the point of that? Your thoughts? Well, it's an example that the government's not listening to the concerns of parents. And we see it not only with this letter grade system, but we see it with, uh, well, certainly there is a very large uh, group of parents concerned with the lack of testing for dyslexia, for example. Mm. Um, and, you know, the drops in literacy and numeracy, the outcomes that we're seeing in our education, the lack of support for students with learning disabilities. And yet there doesn't seem to be any, you know, corresponding action from this government. It's just plowing straight ahead with, you know, what it thinks is best, government knows best. And meanwhile, parents, the ones who are seeing their children every day and looking at their report cards, seeing um, the development of their children and how they're dealing with the stresses of school. And it's extremely frustrating. And that's probably the biggest thing I get from parents is that they just feel absolutely that they're not being listened to and that they feel frustrated because well, ultimately, and even for my own family, we've had to pay out of pocket for additional tutoring for our kids to help get their literacy and numeracy mm. up. I'm taking a look at what the government is replacing the letter grade system with, and you were right when you mentioned that this had been phased in already in some jurisdictions. I, my own kids, I don't recall seeing a, an A, Bs, or Cs on, on my own kids' report cards for a while, too. So what, they're, what they've phased in now, instead of A, B, C, or D, is what they call a proficiency scale. And these are the terms that will be used on report cards. Instead of A, B, C, or D, it will be emerging, developing, proficient, and extending. Those are the terms that will be used. What do you think of that that system or that, that scale? Because uh, I'm just trying to figure out why they would... Like that doesn't seem, like that kid said, it seems kind of vague, difficult to understand what these terms mean. What are your thoughts? Well, I've, I've experienced it firsthand with my own kids, and I do think it's, it's vague. And even with the corresponding you know, comments from teachers, if your yeah. child is emerging for 10 years, what does that mean? At least I think with, you know, and as, as stressful as it can be to see your percentage grade, it gives you sort of a clear indication of, of how much of the material you're understanding. So if you're only getting 50%, for example, it means that you're potentially only understanding 50% of the material that's being presented to you versus you know, emerging. I had one of my kids emerging in reading comprehension for a number of years, but the school, you know, this is one of the things, this isn't just about the grades. And I think this is what I heard when I listened to your, call, your guest yesterday speaking about this issue. It's actually an entire suite of changes to our education system, which is also a move away from testing. It's also a move away from formal diagnosis of some learning disabilities. Like, you know, we don't have um, formal testing in our education system for things like dyslexia. And when we're moving away from formal diagnosis, 
it's not easy for us to support people who have learning challenges. And it's, you know, maybe having this new system is fine if your child is, let's say, in the extending category or they're proficient all the way through. But it's actually trying to capture and find the ways of helping students that are not proficient. You know, um, and this is one of the things I'm hearing from teachers. I've had teachers actually come and give me quite extensive presentations on the learning outcomes that they're seeing. One teacher actually from grade 11 brought me writing samples from some of the students, and I was actually quite astonished at the poor quality of some of the writing that the students were um, actually doing at that level for what you would think. And, you know, and the teacher said, you know, I'm really afraid because some of my students that have graduated can't, don't have the literacy skills necessary to fill out a job application, you know, at a gas station or, you know, in a restaurant. And, and that's frightening because the whole point of, of our education system is to prepare people for tomorrow, to make sure that they have the skills they need do you, to, to advance through life. Do you therefore believe that they should keep the letter grade system? I mean, this is just one small part of a complex picture we're discussing here on the whole system as a whole, but do you think the letter grade system should be retained? Well, I'll tell you, as education critic and as VC United Caucus member, you know, I really think that listening to parents is the first uh, and most fundamental part of what we have to do. And when parents are signaling that this isn't working, then we certainly have to take a look at that, what that is. And I think, you know, and, and even in estimates, talking about literacy and numeracy, talking about learning outcomes. And, and like your caller said yesterday, some of these things have been, you know, a pathway that we've been on for a number of years. Yeah. When we see that the outcomes aren't what we're trying to achieve, it's, we have to be nimble. We have to review our curriculum. We have to review our method of testing to make sure that teachers' um, standards are upheld and that students right. are really getting what they need. And so, yes, we have to review all of this. We have mm-hmm. to make sure that we're keeping parents. You know, they parents have rights. They have input. These are children that they are responsible for. And I know that you have a juicy segment coming up, which I intend to listen to you about affording a home. We yeah. want to make sure that people are set up for the future. And part of that is making sure that they can, if they are going to advance to post-secondary studies, whether it's in the trades or in a, you know, in a different learning institution, that they can actually get into those um, you know, future endeavors so that they're right. set up to be successful. And, and okay. that's what this is all about. Thank you very much for your time today and your thoughts. I appreciate it a lot. Always a pleasure, Mike. Have a great day. All right, we continue talking about the province phasing out letter grades on kids' report cards. Now, a lot of school districts had already phased this in uh, recently. Uh, Now this is set to go province-wide. So no more A, B, C, D, or F. Instead, there will be a proficiency scale on your kids' report card. Let's check in now with Clint Johnston, president of the BC Teachers Federation. I'm always pleased when you can make the time for us. Clint, thank you for coming on today. No, good morning, Mike. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate it a lot. Where does the teachers' union stand on this one? Uh, well, the teachers' union is supportive of these changes. Um, you know, our members were involved in the work that led to these changes, um, as were many of the other groups in the K to twelve system. So, we understand uh, we understand some of the anxiety that uh, you have heard just recently, but uh, we also know that this is a system of reporting out that aligns more with assessment practices and the new curriculum uh, and how it's delivered. So uh, we're supportive of these changes. What was wrong with the old system, the ABCD system? What was wrong with that? 
Well, like I said, I mean, it's it's been around for a long time, so I get why people uh, question the need to change it. But I think it goes a little bit deeper, and it's it's also worth remembering, by the way, that this is this is reporting. And I every time we get into this conversation, there's a lot of things that start to get blended together. So the assessment practices, how teachers and educators are assessing where a student is in their learning journey. Um, that's not affected by these. These are not changed, but they have changed some of those assessment practices to reflect uh, better practices on how we assess a student and overall where they are on that journey. Um, this is just how they're reported out, whether it's a letter grade or, or whether it's a spectrum. So we think this, this idea of a range of a spectrum combined with the other ways of getting feedback about your, your child, your student, uh, is a more effective way to reflect the way that children are learning. Do you, do you think that... I mean, I've often heard critics say that grading a kid with a letter grade uh, produces stress and anxiety for a child. Do you believe that is the case? I, I think that certainly can happen. I mean, you've got to remember that everybody's a unique individual, but I think there certainly can be stress on a child. And, and it's it's worth noting that when you have letter grades, and I know everybody's really used to them, but the idea that a letter grade is more specific is a bit interesting because you can have 0.5% difference between two children and they have two different letters on the report card. And, and when you're using those letters themselves to assess where a child is in their standing and the child knows that, that absolutely can lead to some anxiety and some stress. Okay. What about the consultation report that the ministry did? As been widely reported this week, there was a 97-page report completed on this topic. The ministry talked to 4,000 people. So they talked to parents, they talked to students, they talked to teachers. And the report concluded that 69% of respondents didn't like this move. They didn't like this move to this proficiency scale and away from letter grades. It it also said, this really jumped out at me, 77% of teachers were opposed to the move. Are, are you, as, as, as the union offside, are you guys offside with your own members here? Well, I don't think we're offside with our own members, um, and I, I appreciate you bringing up those numbers. And I think what that's a reflection of is, is what you've led off with, which is letter grades have been around for a long, long, long time. They are the most obvious interface between, uh, you know, the work your child does in school and a parent at times. Um, we would we would suggest that it's better uh, and more accurate to be talking to your children's teacher and getting some direct input and looking at the written yeah. comments. But they are that most direct form. So when they change, that induces a lot of anxiety. People are worried about a system they understand and know and moving to a new one. Um, I think when you look at those very high numbers, I think part of that is two things. It's a, it's a lack of understanding as of right now. And I know that the ministry has done some work to provide information to parents to help them understand the new system and how it's not going to change anything about the way their child learns or what, where the child is on their journey. It's just going to uh. change what it looks like. Um, but in terms of our members, I think what you're seeing there is a lot of anxiety about what we've been advocating for, which is some time given to educators to understand the new system to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Well, so, yeah. well, well okay, we just have a minute left here, but it, yep. this report also said not only that were teachers dissatisfied with this change, but it said 60% of parents were, were not happy with the change, and 83% of students did not like the change. That's a massive majority of students wanted to keep the, the old system. What what role should they have on that? Shouldn't their views be considered? We just got 30 seconds here, Clint. 
Yeah, I'll be I'll be as quick as I can. I think their views were considered. As I said, there were a lot of groups involved in this, um, but it's also worth noting that the groups involved in designing this are the ones closest to how curriculum and delivery curriculum and all of those things are changing. So uh, I think you'll see those numbers go down when people start to understand and experience the new system over time. Clint, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. All right. Let's talk about your condo now. If you're a condo owner, maybe you rent a condo, maybe you're a part of a strata council at a strata development, you have to follow the bouncing ball here. There's been a lot of changes to all the rules and regulations. Of course, we had the province step in on rental restrictions, right? All condos and stratas available now to be rented out if the owner wants to rent them out. And then we had the changes to age restrictions in strata developments, right? And this was a really big one here now. The government phasing out some of those age restrictions, except for 55 plus. Okay, so you can still have a condo building or a strata development that is 55 and over only. Now, here's the deal. What if a building decides to convert to 55 plus now they're a 55 plus building what if you have a resident in that building who is under the age of 55 well they are grandfathered in they can stay there but what if that person then has a change of life what if they get married what if they have children (laughs) what happens then this is getting complicated isn't it i've got tony g of n2 standing by Condo Homeowners Association. First, have a listen to this here now. You're going to hear condo owner Brianne Pascoe, who's she lives in a building that was converted to 55 plus, and she had some concerns. How is that going to affect her, her life? Have a listen here. You'll also hear Global News reporter Richard Zussman. Let's listen. Everything I feel like is just up in the air for me now. Um, I had purchased the unit in hopes of it being like a nice little stepping stone. The strata for her building in Duncan voting to move to 55 plus. Current legislation requires all strata buildings to allow rentals to anyone. But if the building is 55 plus, they can control the age of the renter, meaning Pasco would not be allowed to have a partner or roommate rent or even move in with her. There's plenty of them that are already designated 55 plus buildings. Um, so he's left this loophole open where you can change to one. And if he hadn't done that, it would have been fine. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Tony Giaventu. Tony is the executive director, Condo Homeowners Association. Very pleased to welcome him back. Tony, thank you for coming on. Hi, it's a pleasure, Mike. It, it's incredibly complicated, isn't it? Yeah, it's getting, it seems to be getting more complicated. So let's talk about some of your concerns here, Tony, with some of the, let's talk about the age restrictions here now. What are you seeing out there on these age restricted buildings, especially on 55 plus buildings that convert to 55 plus? What are your concerns there? Well, on May 1st, there were new regulations that were adopted in cabinet. And what they do is they define what the exemptions are from the 55 plus bylaws. So a whole new term was created and the term is specified resident. So in a specified resident is either a person who's over 55 who is a resident or somebody who is a resident and under 55 at the time the bylaw is created. And what this specified resident description helps to identify is who is exempt from the bylaw and any relationships associated with that person. 
So this is right. where it gets a little confusing, right? So, um, so let's use the 55 and over first. I'm over 55. I live in a building. Strata either has a 55 and over bylaw and they adopt one. doesn't make any difference. I'm exempt because I'm complying with the bylaw. Right. I am, however, as a person over 55, as a specified resident, I am entitled to have a spouse who is under 55. I'm also entitled to have adult children of mine come and live with me who are under 55. And I may even have grandchildren um, or um, other parties where I'm a specified caregiver for them as a trustee in some capacity, or uh, it's just simply um, as a caregiver for those parties in my family. So, so there's this broad kind of family relationship um, that exists for people who are over 55 but in relationship to their other family members. So that's the first specified resident. Right. The second, so the second type, though, is I'm under 55. My building's passed the bylaw. Anybody who is a resident at, in the building, and this has nothing to do with ownership. It's residency. Anybody who's a resident in the building at the time the bylaw is passed is exempt. Yeah. Um, if, so I'm, over, I'm under 55. I'm, let's say I'm 30 years old. I'm single. I live in the unit. I'm going to be exempt. If my family status changes, if I get married or have children, they are also going to be exempt. They don't have to be in the building at the time the bylaw is passed. So, so these exemptions, really, when you look at them from a higher level, they're about protecting family status in a lot of ways. It's what they are. Okay. And how is that working out? I mean, you got to, <laughs> that's a lot of threads here that we can pull on here. Like, how is all that working out? Well, navigating it for the average strata council who are managing their property, especially considering that so many of them are self-managed, it's daunting um, yeah. because they're having to deal with new definitions. They're having to deal with understanding relationships. But those relationships now can even be a little more complicated. So let's say I'm over 55. I marry somebody who's 45 and who's under the age who's no longer a specified resident. But then let's say I pass away and my under 55 person is who was exempt at the time because of the specified resident is there. Um, the, the assumption is, although it's not clear in the regulations, that the person who's 45, because they were exempt and because they were occupying the unit, is going to continue to be exempt. But what if, what if the person under 45 now gets married to somebody else under 55? Yeah, that, that that's another family status relationship. That's not defined, and we actually already have that situation in one strata corporation. And and they're not being at all punitive against the person who's you know getting married again and who's had a new spouse. Um, they're actually trying to figure out how do we manage this under the regulations and recognize family status at the same time. There was, okay. There was a court so there was one quirky little change that occurred also last fall that I think most people get, weren't aware of. There was a provision in the Act that exempted age restriction bylaws in the Strata Property Act from the Human Rights Code. That exemption was repealed. It was removed. Mm. So we now have to look through the lens of age restriction bylaws around things like accommodation, the intent to accommodate, and family status. 
So the human rights code is now going to apply to age restriction bylaws as well as these new regulations. Just in case you didn't think it was, wasn't complicated enough. Yeah. It's just, it's just going to get that much more bizarre, right? Yeah, it's going to get a little bit more complicated, it sounds. Speaking to Tony G. Aventu, Condo Homeowners Association. Hey, Tony, let me get your take on a, a story we discussed on yesterday's show. And this is the story of the, the Langley couple with the noisy neighbor. Now, this was in Estrada Development. This couple, they were living in a, in a town home. Uh, Rukshilla and Michael Levelton and their neighbor had a high end, high decibel, high volume stereo system that he would blast all the time, apparently, and it was driving them absolutely nuts. They tried to work it out. They tried to be a good neighbor policy and try to try to work it out. It, that didn't get anywhere. The neighbor said, look, you just got to get used to it. I'm going to continue to play my loud music. They they fought. They actually they actually won this settlement at the civil resolution tribunal. So they effectively took them to court and won. They did. They beat the, the noisy neighbor. One of the reasons they won the case was because it sounds like they they kept very good records here on and they had a they had a pretty solid case when they went in front of this uh, tribunal. Have a listen to Wendy Wall on yesterday's show. Uh, talking about why this couple, appear, they, they were successful fighting their noisy neighbor. Have a listen. They took very good um, records. They documented everything. They uh, recorded things. They recorded decibels. You know, it, it sounds like they were very organized, and they built their case, and they had a lot of evidence. Yeah. There's many cases where people don't do that. Yeah, so sometimes she said, look, if you're going to fight your neighbor there, you should maybe keep very close records here on, on the noise. Tony, how often is this a problem in stratas and condos in British Columbia, disputes between neighbors over things like noise? Surprisingly not as frequent as we, as we think. We, we get to see the, the horror stories in the media, um, but it isn't that frequent. And when people move into multifamily buildings, they know they're moving in with other people, right? And so it's, um, you know, it's, it's a collective of people. There are going to be noises, there are going to be activities and things that occur. Uh, but it's absolutely essential for strata councils as well as owners to be, very, to be vigilant when you have a chronic offender who is not prepared to comply with the bylaws and respect the quietness and enjoyment of everybody else in the building. It has a, a huge detriment to the effective use of a property and, you know, and, and everyone's lifestyle is altered substantially. So, you know, record keeping is critical, but communication is critical as well. You know, yeah. just because you get a decision in the tribunal doesn't necessarily mean this person's going to stop the noise. Um, yeah. You know, they, this may go to the next level. This this decision is probably going to have to be registered in Supreme Court. And if this perpetuates, they're probably going to have to go to the next level to get an order, a cease and desist order, which may result in um, uh, a contempt order from the courts if they if the parties aren't complying. So this, okay. isn't the first, this isn't the first time we've had this problem. Won't be the last. But, you know, when you live in a strata corporation, it comes with everyone else's um, bumps their roles, their noises, and their quirks that we have in day-to-day life. And that's just the, the life of condo living. We all live with it. All right, we continue my conversation with Tony G. Aventu, Executive Director, Condo Homeowners Association. The phone lines are open to him, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Dale in Kamloops. Hi, Dale, go ahead. Hey, thanks. Um, 
I got a quick question about when, when you just live on a street and the guy next door is partying his, his face off and it's past 11 o'clock because there's a, a noise by law, you can phone the cops and they come and deal with it. Can you not do that in a strata? Tony. Well, it's not that simple because noise and tractions within a strata um, are the responsibility of that community. So they're kind of deemed like they're isolated communities. But if there is a, um, if there is a noise infraction <coughs> that is going to also result in other types of issues that might require police involvement, yes, you can definitely call the police. Yeah, but would oh. you say, Dale, thank you for that call. It's an interesting point. Would you say, Tony, that, you know, in, when there's a dispute between neighbors like this, it's always best to talk it out first, you know, a good neighbor policy before you call the police or drag the strata council into it, like try to work it out with your neighbor first. Uh, by all means. And, you yeah. know, we're coming up to, we're coming up to Canada Day. There are going to be parties on Saturday night. Um, there's going to be noise. We have them. People have birthday parties. People have anniversaries and weddings. And, you know, we have incidents and circumstances that occur just in the natural cycle. Um, it's the chronic person who uh, has a total disregard for their neighbors that blasts out their stereo or they have parties every Wednesday night and Saturday night till three in the morning, or they decide that practicing the violin or the bagpipes at two in the morning is acceptable. You know, like there have to be, there's reasonable hours of use and enjoyment that we live by and those have to be respected. But if your neighbors can, you know, come to some sort of agreement and consensus, that's great. But then you have to involve the strata council and possibly the police if the matter is yep. more serious. Wayne and Langley. Hi, Wayne. Go ahead. Uh, thanks, Mike. Well, what if you buy into a 55-plus, uh, uh, existing 55-plus strata, and, um, and you know the rule applies, the rule is there. Are you still entitled to all of the exemptions um, that are provided by the uh, by the new legislation, um, i.e., the uh, family member that's under uh, uh, 45, or or the uh, or, or your child uh, that could live with you. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you, yeah. So you can have your you can have your child come live with you. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. You get yeah. all of the exemptions when you purchase in. If you're over 55, you're considered to be one of those specified residents. Yeah. Okay, let's say I let's say I buy into a fifty-five plus building, Tony, and then I have maybe my son or daughter or child come live with me. Is is that is that relative now able to stay there forever? Like, what if I pass away or I decide to I decide to leave the unit in the will to the to the kids? Can they can those kids continue to stay there? Well, that's where the regulations don't really answer that question. They don't talk about succession or they yeah. don't talk about change in ownership. Uh, I, I think it's going to come down to a question of how the Strata Corporation's bylaws are worded. We're probably going to get some decisions out of the CRT that are going to address that. Plus, we also have the potential for challenges under the Human Rights Code on family status. Um, but I think when you're looking at a change of ownership in a specified resident, that may have an impact. There's one other type of scenario that's come up recently that we've been, you know, trying to get an answer on. What about the retired couple in a strata? And this, this is in a large airland strata, so they're independent homes, but it's 55 and over. They have hired um, a caregiver 
um, from the Philippines who is coming to live with them. The caregiver is under 55. Oh. The caregiver yeah. now wants her husband and two children to come and live with them. You know, so this is okay. not necessarily a family status. This, this is now an employment issue, and that's a different relationship. Okay, we continue to follow these issues closely. Tony, thanks for your expertise today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. Always a pleasure. All right. Let's talk now about this unaffordable housing market, especially for first-time home buyers. How can any young people afford to buy a home in this market? Brand new study out on this, just out from the Enveronics Research Company, says many first-time home buyers heading to the bank to get the cash they need. No, not BMO, not CIBC. I'm talking about the bank of mom and dad. So first-time home buyers turning to their parents for help with that first purchase, especially, of course, if their parents already own a home, they can borrow against the equity in that property, help their kids out to get into this market. Uh, this study also indicating that in many of those cases, the money uh, from mom and dad does not have to be paid paid back. This is something parents are doing for their kids. Well, okay, well, that's great. If you got you got parents who are already in the market, they can help you out. That's awesome. But what if you don't have parents who can help you out on that? What about those people? Here's another finding in this uh, study here. The anxiety and stress and worry that people are feeling. First-time homebuyers worried about not being able to seal the deal and buy that home. They may be out there in the market. They may have saved that down payment. They may be pre-approved for a mortgage. They're still worried that the deal is not going to go through in this market. Got David Tang standing by. Have a listen to this now. This is uh, Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur. You'll also hear the voice here of Realtor Nico Lambernudis. Let's listen. Almost three-quarters of first-time homebuyers are worried that their down payment won't be enough. And as a result... Most end up expanding their search to areas where homes are cheaper. And even then, it's not enough. We just had a client that started off in Burnaby, then we looked at Nuez, into Coquitlam. We finally ended up in Port Coquitlam last week. Ten offers. We had to go way over the asking price to even have a shot at it. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, David Tang. David is a realtor. He's co-founder Tang and Kung Real Estate Group. And I'm very pleased to welcome David back to the show. David, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be on here. Okay, David, yeah, thanks for doing it, man. And when you talk to your clients here now, are you are you sensing that worry, that that anxiety, stress, even if people they're trying to buy that first home, they worry that they're not going to be able to make it. What are you hearing? Well, absolutely. I think there is um, people worrying about getting into the housing market. Prices obviously has, um, in some cases, rebounded. Um, and so home ownership goals, especially amongst first-time home buyers uh, going into the market, is still sort of top of the priority for a lot of my clients. And it's just a matter of how they're going to do it. Um, and you're right, uh, with this report, we, we are, personally, I have seen a lot of um, first-time home buyers leaning towards their um, um, mom and dad, bank of mom and dad, to help with, with uh, purchase. Yeah. Uh, and in many cases, they're probably going to have to find creative ways where they're going to settle for a further location, uh, potentially even starting off on a lot smaller property, um, and then hopefully being to move up later on that, um, in that regards. 
Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that, David, because we heard that in that clip there that we just played. People who may, you know, they may have their heart set on a certain neighborhood, a certain part of Metro, but man, you know, it, reality starts to hit home if you can't afford it and you start looking further out. How far are people willing to look, though, to get into a place? Well, right, right now, with uh, after the post-pandemic situation, we've seen a lot of people have made arrangements with their work. Uh, so remote work is still by far uh, something that is an option for a lot of people. Um, so I think that's kind of changed the landscape from what people expected uh, where they would live. Um, yeah. Transit-oriented areas are obviously uh, still high in demand. So um, people are okay with moving out further as long as it they have access to transit um, and conveniences uh, within where they live. Yeah. I remember, are, are any parts of Metro Vancouver, the lower mainland, even remotely affordable? Like, you know, it used to be if you move to the suburbs, you move to the Tri-City, or you move out to the Valley. I mean, that's where you could get into a starter home. But man, even the Valley is so expensive now, right? Like, are, are some of these areas, yeah. though, even more, just a little bit more reasonable? You know, it's definitely tough with the resale market, um, given that there is still relatively low inventory. Um, we're not really seeing a uh, massive enough supply that's coming to the market that's really diluting the demand. And so I think that's one of the key issues here is that there's just not a lot of inventory out there. So as in terms of what's affordable in which areas within Metro Vancouver or maybe in certain areas like Fraser Valley, um, you know, I, I think I think we're we're seeing areas uh, that would be somewhat more affordable, but it's still not it's still expensive in most cases by by means. Right, we're looking at a lot of condos, one bedrooms and upwards, still well north of five hundred thousand. Right, and yeah. so a lot of people, uh, what they do is they they uh, I've seen they have two incomes that's supporting a one bedroom condo, and it could be. Um, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, or it could be just two really good friends that's trying to just get into the market, and those has occurred as well. But we are we are seeing that uh, people are more flexible to go uh, further out, and I think some of the communities that offer a little bit more value uh, by far still, uh, Surrey still has a lot of options out there, um, and we're talking about uh, certain other areas like um, Coquillam West along North Road. There's a lot of SkyTrain developments. The new condos by still uh, higher in price, but they're definitely uh, lower price point compared to downtown Vancouver or Vancouver East-West type of idea. Mm -hmm. Speaking of realtor, David David Tang. David, we heard in that report there, uh, one of your colleagues there describing like a bidding war. You know, even when you start looking out further afield to find a place that people can afford... Buyers are still faced with com competitors for the property, multiple bids, having to bid, bid over the asking price. I think there was, I, I was under the impression that maybe market had cooled off a little bit, but are, are you seeing that out there? Like bidding wars going on? You know, there's still there's still definitely a lot of uh, competition and, and bidding wars. Um, really just means that you've got other buyers that's bidding against that same property that they want to uh, get as well too and the, and the cause of that is really again we, we're still getting more demand than the actual supply that's coming onto the market the market did cool down as the interest rate has uh, hiked uh, rapidly last year we've seen um, uh, prices uh, come down we've seen the demand come down now uh, there is 
because of that, there's obviously a pent-up demand. A lot of those buyers who stepped out of the market are still looking to get into the market, but they're looking for a little bit more certainty. So when we've seen the Bank of Canada put the pause on um, early in the year, the first two uh pause on the interest rate, we've seen a lot of demand come back in at that time where people felt they've seen a little bit more of that certainty. It'll be interesting to see. We've obviously had the uh, interest rate hike uh, just um, last month, uh, um, uh, this month, and we were probably expecting one other one in uh, July. So over the next few months, we'll we'll see what that kind of turns out at. But, you know, we're we're still dealing with a supply issue. I would also add that the option for people to live in a home it would be either to own a property stay with their parents or they're going to rent a property and the rental prices has skyrocketed um, so significantly that that's not really an option for a lot of folks these days they're, they're looking at okay well I'll either stay uh, at my parents for a lot longer than I, I, I should or they're going to do what they can and, and have their parents help them to try to just get into the market. And otherwise, uh, they'll still be paying uh, quite, a, uh, quite a high rental uh, rate uh, for the other option. Yeah, that was a great point. I mean, the rents are, are sky high as well. It's really super difficult to find a decent, affordable place to, to rent Never mind for first-time home buyers. This is such a difficult situation we're facing here. We got those high interest rates. Another interest rate hike looming, potentially. You got strict mortgage qualification rules. You got people who are just having difficulty scraping together the money in a reasonable time for, for that down payment. I mean, and the shortage of supply, like you described. I mean, this is just super difficult. And then you have people doing what, what you just said. You've got to go, if you can, you got to go to the bank of mom and dad and ask them for help. Let's have a listen to Sherlock Yam here. He is a mortgage broker talking about people look, turning to their parents. Let's listen. As the rates go up, the uh, mortgage amount that they qualify for is getting less and less. So bank of mom and dad are, are digging deep into their home equities to come up with that difference. Now, David, are you seeing a lot of that? Like are a lot of your clients, do they have parents who are helping them out? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, it's important to... Uh, again, understand that in Canada, we still have very large uh, baby boomer uh, generation. And, and so there's actually a lot of um, equity and wealth. Uh, uh, we're, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars um, in, in clear title still. So a lot of the the bank of mom and dad is by far still a, a very significant reason to why people are still able to get into the market. Um, and and they're it, it, the sentiment out there seems to be there. The parents are more willing and, and more concerned, if anything, to just make sure that their their, their kids are able to uh, have sort of their their own home and 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 get into the market um, first. So we are seeing that's the that's been the uh, that that's been rising. We've seen a lot more uh, of the parents looking into supporting their kids. I mean, they're still enjoying their plans, but they're definitely allocating more of their uh, funds to help their kids if they can, and and we've seen that. Yeah, this new report indicating that a lot of first-time homebuyers are doing precisely that. They're turning to their parents for help. If their parents can leverage the equity in their own homes, that family home, use that money, help their kids get into the market, it's completely understandable. And it's, it's interesting that in many cases this... This study suggests that parents 
parents not even expecting to get the money back. So they're just gifting money to their kids to try and get them into the market. And I think any parent would obviously want want to do that, help their children get a foothold in this unaffordable market. So if they can do it, they're going to do it. And but what if you don't have a what if you don't have parents who've got a house or don't have savings and they can't help you out? What if you don't have a bank of mom and dad? What about those yeah. people? Great question, and I work with a lot of those clients as well. And what I've seen is that again, things the market doesn't make dramatic changes. We're not probably uh, you know uh, I, I, unfortunately we're probably not expecting prices to crash to a level where people is going to be easily able to afford a property, especially talking about Metro Vancouver. Instead, what we're finding is we're finding uh, different expectations that we haven't seen before. Um, what I mean by that is one thing is that previously people wanted something where they'll have maybe a little bit more living space or a second bedroom, uh, their office, etc. And now we're seeing people looking at location and they're going, you know what, this is a very good location. Uh, there's a number of uh, really good coffee shops and that's kind of their office, to be honest. Like they're, they're looking at, you know, I'll... I'll, I'll uh, expect mortgage payments to rise, but I'm going to settle for a little bit less here, but I will be moving my plans to uh, live in the area that, that can support having uh, things like that. Now, the other thing, too, is that a lot of these newer condos, um, though they're a lot smaller in size to keep the price down a bit, they're also including a lot of amenities that we haven't uh, really expected before. And, and we're talking about communal uh, workspaces. Uh, we're talking about meeting rooms. Uh, we're talking about recreation rooms, dining rooms, uh, where, you know, if you have a family over for, for uh, the holidays, um, they'll have things like guest room that they can stay there um, so they don't have to stay in the unit itself. Uh, and they'll, they'll be able to entertain guests, 20, 30 people, but they're going to use their mm. uh, buildings and manager's room. So I've seen that this is now a require, sort of a expectation that people yeah. are looking for um, in their home. So I think, I think people are either moving further out or they're trying to start off a little smaller um, and they're still trying to purchase something that's below their pre-approved amount because they're weathering okay. the, the interest rates. Yeah. David, Really great insights. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Roy. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.